All right. Well, now we're at, ready to conclude our series called The Prequel. So can you shift gears again? Put all your papers away. Don't read the 2017 stuff now. Take out your Bibles. Take out your phone, your tablet, whatever you use to read. And turn to the book of Judges for the last time. Hopefully not in your life, but the last time in this series. We started the prequel all the way back in the, at the end of January when it was winter. And here we are in, in March. It's still winter. I'm ready to get rid of this this season. Uh, I hear more snows coming. Like, what is up with that? Like, I'm ready for spring. Well, anyway, we're in a series that we're calling the prequel. And we call it prequel because we want to continually reinforce the idea that the Bible is not a collection of stories that are unrelated and disconnected. The Bible is one big story, and Jesus is the main event. Jesus is the leading character. Everything moves to him and from him. And so when we look at Old Testament accounts, when we look at incidents from Judges and from the book of Ruth, we want to remind ourselves they are incidents in the backstory of Jesus. They're not independent accounts that kind of stand all by themselves. They're leading somewhere, and where they're leading is to the point and the purpose of the whole Bible. It's Jesus. Well, this morning, what we're going to do to conclude, we're going to do a little recap and a little review. Now, if you were here for a number of weeks, I'm probably not going to say a whole lot of things that are new. If you haven't been here, some of what I'm going to say, oh, I didn't know we did that. Well, we've been doing that for the last few weeks. But a lot of people often say, rather than just end the series with the next installment, it's really helpful if you go back and help us say, what were the main themes? What were kind of the big things that we need to keep in mind so that even though we're leaving the series, we keep the big picture, the big ideas in view? So that's kind of what we're seeking to do this morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, your phone, your tablets, I'm going to read a few verses from Judges chapter 2. And what happens in Judges 2 the author's giving us an overview of the book. We've already looked at a whole bunch of the details, the main characters that follow, but here's the big picture overview that will give you a frame of reference for the recap and review. So chapter two, beginning in verse six, and I'll read through 19. You can follow along as I read. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance in Timnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. 
Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Kind of a sad commentary. And we've been looking at it for a couple of months. Over and over again, same cycle, rebellion, oppression, repentance, and rescue. Over and over again. We've looked at the main characters of Judges, and I won't ask you to tell me about each of them, but let me just kind of rehearse the six main characters. We started out by looking at Othniel, and there's not a whole lot of content on Othniel in the book of Judges. Othniel gives us the paradigm, remember? And so when you read Othniel at the beginning of the book, he's the first major judge that's mentioned, you kind of get the paradigm. That's where the cycle comes from. It comes from Othniel. The cycle of rebellion, then there's oppression, then they cry out to God in repentance, and then God rescues them. The cycle is made crystal clear with Othniel. After Othniel comes Ehud. He's the wrong-handed judge. He's left-handed. Remember, he stabs fat king Eglon. All the stuff runs out, right? And he rescues, he judges and brings deliverance. Then we looked at Deborah, the one most like a judge in our day. Deborah held court the way a judge does. And people would bring their disputes and their, you know, discrepancies to her. And she would kind of sort them out. She had wisdom, not just of herself, wisdom from God. And she would settle the disputes and help people figure it out. And Deborah tells us the story of Jael, who pegged the guy to the ground, remember? Uh, Gross stories in Judges, right? That's why the guys usually like Judges. But then after Deborah and Jael, then comes Gideon. And Gideon reminds us that it's not our strength but actually God's strength working through our weakness. Remember, Gideon started with like 30,000 troops, and God says, whoa, that's way too many. If you go to battle with 30,000, you're going to think you did it yourselves. You need to get rid of some of those guys. So it's Gideon, tell everybody who's afraid to go home. 22,000 go home. God says, still have too many. Go down to the river. I only want the lappers to go with me, right? So the guys that kind of lap, they go with only 300. And God rescues his people with only 300 people with really weird kind of weapons. And after Gideon comes Jephthah, remember? He's kind of that, the gang leader, outcast. And he makes a stupid promise, and even more stupidly, he obeys the stupid promise he made. And then after Jephthah comes Samson. Not much good to say about Samson. Whole lot of muscles, little bit of brains. That was Samson. Not much to follow in him. But he's a good example of what we've said about the judges most of the way through. Dysfunctional people doing despicable things. That's kind of how it works. And a question's probably come up in your mind through the series. How in the world can God use people like that? To which I would say, well, what other kind of people are there? (laughs) Well, if God's going to use people, they're going to be kind of dysfunctional. They're going to do despicable things because there are no people that do really good things all the time. And so God's grace transcends their despicable acts and their dysfunctional attitudes and upbringing. And God uses people that really, from our perspective, often shouldn't be used. And that's good news for us because as I look around, we've got a whole lot in common with the judges, don't you think? Dysfunctional people often doing despicable things, but just like God used them so he can use us. Well, what are some of the big themes that we need to wrestle through? 
Well, here's one that comes up throughout the book. And I want to make sure you don't miss it. And some of you think, we wouldn't have missed it. Well, you're not going to miss it because I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes. And that is, how do we understand this whole rebellion deal? Or if you don't like the rebellion word, how are we supposed to understand sin? Uh, just in case you haven't noticed, a lot of people have different definitions of what sin really is. Well, I don't think that's wrong. Oh, I think that's really wrong. I think this is good. Oh, I don't think that's good. You ever notice people have lots of disagreements? Judges helps us understand and wrestle through all of that. So remember our cycle, rebellion, oppression. Then there's repentance. Often it's kind of not sincere. And out of that comes rescue. Well, what is rebellion? What causes it at the beginning? It's all a matter of perspective. It's all about eyes. Yes, these things. It's all about eyes. Let me show you what I mean. The last verse in the book of Judges is this. In those days, Israel had no king. This is before the monarchy, before Saul and David, all right? In the last days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Literally, the last verse says this. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. See, it's all about eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Because as they were putting it together, well, this seems right to me. In my eyes, this is good. In my eyes, this isn't a problem. It was all about their eyes. Do you remember a verse that I read from chapter 2 that mentions somebody else's eyes? How about this from 2.11? Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you see those two ideas bouncing off of each other in debate and duel through the whole book. God's eyes versus their eyes. Their eyes versus God's eyes. God's eyes. And there's a discrepancy. Do you ever notice that there's usually a discrepancy in people's eyes? We have different perspectives, right? Let me give you a couple examples. Here's a two-and-a-half-year-old. He wants to go out and play in the snow, but he doesn't want to wear a coat or boots to go play in the snow. Mom has a rather different perspective. In her eyes, it would be wrong to go out without a coat and boots, but in his eyes, it's perfectly right to go out without a coat and without boots. Now, who wins? Well, mom wins. She stuffs his little arms in the coat, zips it up, puts the boots on, and throws them out in the snow. Right? And so, but there's a discrepancy of eyes, right? His eyes aren't matching her eyes. Or how about this one? In the husband's eyes... The curtains that hang in the living room are perfectly appropriate. They've been good up there for 34 years, and they'll be good for another 34 years, right? There's nothing wrong with the curtains. But in her eyes, the curtain should have been replaced 30 years ago. Whose eyes are right? Now, don't answer that, but just think. There's a discrepancy in the eyes, right? Or how about this? Was it pass interference or not? It's hard to get rid of football, right? Since the Eagles are world champs, right? And was it pass interference or not? Well, in the defense's eyes, it was not pass interference. In the offense's eyes, it was pass interference. Whose eyes matter? The ref's eyes. Actually, the guys in New York make the call. The guys in New York tell you what it was. So the real question is, not is there a discrepancy in eyes. There is a discrepancy in eyes. The question is, Whose eyes matter? Do your eyes matter? Do my eyes matter? Do the eyes of the experts matter most? Do the majority's eyes matter most? Whose eyes matter most? Isn't it amazing how contemporary the book of Judges is? 
thousands of years old, but the issue is exactly the same. We live in a culture that says your eyes matter most, right? You need to determine what's right and wrong for you. You need to determine how you put life together for yourself. Just follow your heart because your eyes matter most. That, that's the message that we receive over and over and over again. That's the same message the Israelites were hearing and living by in the book of Judges. They were all saying, my eyes matter most. That's what the theme of Judges is. But God says, my eyes matter most. How do we define rebellion? How do we define sin according to the scripture? Sin is living apart from God's eyes. Living outside of what God says is permissible. God's eyes matter most. That's what we're called to do. Live life according to God's perspective, according to God's eyes. Now, it's really important for me to say this because it's part of the whole story. And we've, you know, drunk so deeply at the well, my eyes matter most, it's hard for us even to conceive of another script. God's eyes matter most, not because he wants to make our lives miserable. God doesn't say, hey, don't do that, but do this. Don't do that. Do that. God doesn't do that to ruin our lives or make us miserable. God's perspective says, I want you to live life as I intended. I want your life to be full. Jesus comes and says, I came to bring abundant life. But you're only going to experience that abundant, full life as you live it according to God's eyes, not your own eyes. So what's rebellion? Living outside of God's perspective. Living according to your eyes rather than his eyes. That's what the Bible means by sin. Radically different than our culture, but that's what the scripture says. Living life according to God's eyes, if you live, up, if you live otherwise, that's rebellion. Well, that kind of brings us to another topic that runs throughout the book of Judges. And that's the topic of idolatry. You notice, every, notice even in the passage I read, in every round of the cycle throughout the book, it always begins, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and bowed down to the idols. Idolatry is front and center. Idolatry is kind of connected to this whole rebellion deal. The problem is we read judges and think, I'm good on that one. I have no statues that I bow down to in my house at all. I don't put fruit or food before anything in my house except me, right? And so I'm clear when it comes to the idolatry thing. I'm good. I'm... No, no, no. The idols may have changed. The process is exactly the same. So what you need to do, you need to understand the process a little bit. Now, you need to hang in there, right? Put your seatbelts on. Make sure you're thinking clearly. If you can get this, you really get a biblical anthropology, right? Anthropology is how human beings are kind of wired and put together. God built us, and here's how he says he built us. Here's how the process works. So you need to track with me. First thing you need to know is something about your world, world. Now, when I say world, I don't mean the earth, right? I mean your world. Your world is your circumstance, your situation. So for example, in your world, there are people in your world, right? If you're married, your spouse is in your world. If you're a student, your teachers are in your world. Your classmates are in your world. Um, 
I'm in your world, right? How happy you should be, right? And you're in my world. What a downer that is, right? We're the people in your life, your neighbors are in your world, your boss is in your world, your employees are in your world, the people that report to you are in your world, your kids are in your world. All the people of your life that you interact with, they're all in your world. But it's not just people. There are also things in your world. Your house or apartment is in your world. The leaky roof is in your world. The flooded basement in your world. The fact you don't have electricity is in your world. Your dog and cat is in your world. You need to get rid of one of them, by the way. But they're in your world. If you have other pets, don't ask me why, but they're in your world. Um, Your 401k or lack thereof is in your world. Your checking account and bank account are in your world. Your finances are in your, see how that works? Everything Everything about your situation and circumstance, all that stuff is in your world. So for the Israelites in the book of Judges, They were living in Canaan, but they were living in a little tiny place of it because they haven't taken it over yet. God says, I want you to get rid of all the idols in the land. So that meant the Canaanites and all the idols were in their world. And God's saying, get them out of there. The people that live there, the animals that live there, their situation lived there, the strength of their enemies, their own weakness, the judges were in their world. God's word is in, all that stuff's kind of there. Got it? Well, into that world we then produce fruit. You know, you're kind of like a tree, right? You're producing fruit. We produce fruit as human beings in three varieties. Here are the three kinds of fruit that we make. Not apples, oranges, grapefruit. Here's the fruit you produce. Thoughts, what you think you're producing, right? You're kind of taking in stuff and you're thinking thoughts. Some of those thoughts you think are really, really good thoughts, right? You're producing good fruit. Some of those thoughts are bad thoughts. You're producing, you kind of like you're a mixed up, you're a mixed up harvest. Some good, some bad. Not just thoughts though, we produce the fruit of action. We do things and that comes in good and bad varieties too, right? Some of you, let's face it, you produce rotten actions. You do terrible things, but you also produce some good things. When you love and serve people, you're producing good fruit. When you're kind of, you know, sinister, gossiping, tearing people down, that's bad fruit. So you've got thoughts, you've got actions, and you've got feelings. We produce that stuff. And again, feelings come in those same two varieties. Some of your feelings, love and joy, that's good stuff, right? Anger, that's kind of a bad fruit. We produce feelings, we produce actions, and we produce um, words that we say, we produce thoughts that we think. That, that's all the kind of fruit we make. Each of us are producing a harvest. And here's the interesting thing. As we produce this harvest, we put that fruit into play in our world. Other people experience and eat the fruit that we're producing. So when you're angry, your anger is in someone else's world. They're kind of processing. When somebody else is angry or full of joy, you're processing that. Our harvests are kind of overlapping with our world. It's complicated. So back in Judges, the Israelites were producing fruit. They were afraid because the enemies had better weapons and they had walls around their city. They were, they were producing actions by not obeying God, right? They're disobedient. They're thinking, they're feeling. They're, it's producing bad stuff. Okay, but that's only two of the three. Here's the third thing you need to know if you're going to understand how God built us. There's world, the stuff in your circumstance, situation. Fruit, the stuff you're making. Thoughts, feelings, actions. Heart. Your heart. Now, you got to understand, the Bible doesn't use heart the way we do. When we refer to heart, like Valentine's Day just passed, right? When we refer to heart, we refer to emotion. Biblically speaking, heart 
um, is an emotion. Emotion's a fruit. In fact, the Bible has emotion words. They're words like kidneys, bowels. They're, they're feeling words, right? So next time you're feeling in a loving mood, tell your wife you love her with all your bowels, right? Uh, that, that would be very biblical when you say that. And, and, you know, the Bible's a whole lot more accurate, right? If you're really feeling angry or if you're very upset or anxious, your bowels rumble, right? And you need to make it to the restroom. Um, that's kind of how the Bible, the baddest stuff is fruit, not heart. Here's what the Bible means by heart. What you value most, what you trust above everything else, what you've put the highest price tag on, what you love more than anything else. Not love as an emotion, but what you're devoted to, what you're trusting, what is the highest value, where are you finding your identity? Now here is where we uh, separate from culture. We often live and think as if world produces our fruit. And we say things like this, you make me so happy no, you don't. Or we say this, you make me so mad. No, you don't. World does not produce fruit. Heart produces fruit. That's what the Bible says. What you're loving is driving that emotion. What you're trusting, where you're finding your value and identity, that's what's driving that fruit. It's our heart that produces the fruit. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, the heart is the wellspring of all of life. It's from the heart that our harvest comes, not from the world. Now the world, the world in which we live, can influence that, but it's caused by the heart. So, uh, so what the heck does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Whatever you value most, you worship. Whatever you're trusting more than anything else is your real God. Wherever you're finding your identity is what owns you. That's what it means. Now, how does that process work when it comes to idolatry? Here's how it works. What the Israelites did in Judges is this. They looked around in their world and they saw that their enemies, the people that lived in the land, they were worshiping, bowing down and serving these idols and their life seemed to be better than their lives. The lives of the people that live there, right, seem to be better. So what they did is they took something from their world, one of those idols, and promoted it to the first place in their heart. And so the idols in their world were adopted and became the priorities in their heart. So now they are worshiping and serving the Baals and the Asherahs. They're looking around. They take something in their world and they promote it to first place in their heart. That's how the process works. Now, my guess is you haven't promoted Baal in your heart. You probably haven't promoted Ashtoreth in your heart. But I'd be willing to bet you're tempted to promote something in your world into your heart. Are you ever tempted to promote your job to number one priority? Notice, if you make your job your God, your job is a good job, it's a lousy God. When you make your job your God, now you're willing to trash family, friends, vacation, downtime, Sabbath, church. You trash everything in order to serve that God of job. Isn't that how it works? Or maybe you say, no, 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 it's not job, it's money. 
I'm tempted to promote money. Money's a good thing, right? You need money to transact business and live life in this world. But when, when you take that good gift of money and you make it your top priority, your God, money now drives you and you'll do anything to get it. You'll do whatever you have to to keep it. Ruin relationships, lie, steal, live outside the bounds. See how it works? When good gifts become God things, they become your idol. Sex is a good thing. God invented it. But when it becomes your main thing, the driving force in your life, Jesus gets demoted, sexual pleasure gets promoted, and now you're living, doing whatever you can to get or keep that particular, that's idolatry. The idols have changed, the process is alive and well. And just in case you haven't noticed, the problem that the people in the days of the judges wrestled with, this idolatry thing, that's the same exact thing we struggle with, right? We take good gifts, in our world, we promote them to first place in our hearts, we make them our idols. Once they're our top priority, they drive us. And we live for it, bowing down, serving, rather than bowing and serving God. So here's how the process works. God made us so that we have to prioritize, or another way to think of it, we have to put price tags on things. As you go through life, you can't not prioritize. Other animals and all, they don't do that. We do it. Here's what we do. We say, this is more important than that. Right? So you all have said, amazingly, by the way, church is more important this morning than something else. You could have stayed in bed, right? You lost an hour last night. You could have stayed in bed. You could have gone shopping, could have hung out, you couldn't have gone to the beach, but you could have done something. Um, but church was more important than that. See, you put a higher price tag on being here. Some of you put higher price tags on food, on money, job, reputation, right? You put price tags on things. We have to do that. We're designed that. The problem is God calls us to put the highest price tag on Jesus, but we refuse and put the highest price tag on something else. And make no mistake, the book of Judges is proof. Whatever you make your priority other than Jesus, Whatever you put the highest price tag on beside Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus is coming to get it. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He knows that you're going to trash your life and ruin your life unless he is in the center. So whatever we set our sights on and make it a higher priority than him, make no mistake, he's coming to get it. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. The, the people of Israel put a higher price tag on something else other than God, he allows oppression to come. He's coming to get it. He's allowing that to be shaken so that in their wisdom, they genuinely cry out knowing that they're helpless and hopeless and God sends a rescuer. That's what he wants. And once the rescuer comes and the rescuer takes his priority place, we need to keep him there, but we often don't keep him there before he slips away and we're running after something else again. That is the process of living the Christian life. In three little pictures, the process, exactly the same. Do you live that process? That's how it works. Well, what's the solution then? Well, the solution is not Othniel. The solution is not Samson, thank God. Uh, the solution isn't Gideon or Deborah. The solution isn't even Ruth. The solution is the ultimate rescuer. Listen to what John records and think of what we've been talking about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes, that's heart stuff, right? Whoever believes, trusts, makes him top priority, loves, finds their identity in him, whoever clings to him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to rescue the world through him. So here's what we try to do every Sunday. Here's what you need to do every day of your life. Maybe every Here's what you need to do. Take whatever idol, whatever thing you want to promote, whatever you put the highest price tag on other than Jesus, bring it on. You bring it on. You recall it in your head, think about it in your heart, and just compare that to Jesus. And if you're going to be honest, Jesus will win. And when you compare them, you lose your grip on the idol and you'll cling more tightly to him. That's how the process works. So one last run. Here's another theme that runs through Judges. Over and over and over and over again. So let's try the comparison. The book of Judges begins, and Joshua died, and Othniel died, and Ahud died, and Deborah died, and Barak died, and Gideon died, and Jephthah died. And Samson died. Ruth and Boaz even died. And as soon as they die, what did we read into? As soon as they die, people revert back to the process of putting the wrong price tags on things. But we've got a rescuer who never dies. We've got a rescuer who lives forever and ever. Therefore, the peace he brings is eternal and he never dies. That's why Easter is so strategic. That's why we need to bring those idols, those temporary deliver. Bring them on. Compare them to Jesus. Everybody dies. Jesus, the, the, the deliverer, lives forever. And the peace he brings never ends. That idolatry process is alive and well in you and in me. How do you break the cycle? You bring your idol on. Compare it to Jesus. And you'll find your grip on the idol lessening as you put the highest price tag on your relationship with him and you'll go into life with him as your priority. Then you're in a position to continue what Jesus started. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for the themes of judges that are also the themes of the whole Bible. And theme number one is that when we turn our backs on you and put a higher price tag on something other than you, we are in a hopeless and a helpless position. But we've got a loving, caring, sovereign God who's unwilling to let oppression and rebellion become the end of the story. And so as we lift our eyes, you get our attention, you send the ultimate rescuer. And his name's not Othniel or Samson or Deborah, his name's Jesus. He paid the price for our sin and he rose again never to die. And the peace that he extends and the invitation that he offers is good forever and ever. So Lord, as we live through life, tempted to promote other things to the place that only Jesus should have, get our attention early in that process and help us to bring those idols on, compare them to Jesus and do the wise thing. Let go of what we're trusting let go of where we're finding our identity. Let go of what we're loving and trust in love 
find our identity in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.